we've taken uh, a brief uh, break from studying the book of Acts in order to talk about being a peacemaker and how the Bible shows us how we can spread the peace of Christ to other people around us. And I hope that was a help. I uh, was blessed by several people who came to me and said that uh, they were going through some difficult things with um, conflict and that it helped them. I was so blessed by that. Uh, As I mentioned in my series, the reason why I started it is because uh, I uh, needed that truth for myself. I was uh, going through some uh, things that I needed biblical wisdom, and as I began to study uh, these things, uh, it helped me, and I was hoping it would help others, so I'm glad that it did. But we find ourselves back in the book of Acts, and we're in chapter 21 <clears throat> as we've journeyed through this book, uh, not just the Acts of the Apostles, but more correctly, the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles and through uh, by extension, us today. We read what God did through uh, His apostles in the book of Acts, and we see what the power of the Holy Spirit can do uh, for us as we dedicate ourselves to Him and uh, let Him rule and reign in our hearts. And um, We are coming to a portion of Scripture uh, in verse 26 of Acts 21 that really will carry us through the rest of the book of Acts. And it is the arrest and imprisonment of Paul. Uh, The book of Acts doesn't end at the end of Paul's life. It actually ends during his first imprisonment. He was eventually released and has about 10 more years afterwards of ministry. Um, Let me make sure I get the math right. Yeah, just about 10 years. And so um, he is imprisoned again. He makes his way to Spain uh, to share the gospel and He is imprisoned once again, Uh, so this is uh, not his very first imprisonment. He did have imprisonment uh, while there briefly in Philippi as well, and uh, as as you might remember as we looked at verses 1 through 25, uh, Paul is going back to Jerusalem, uh, and he's headed there for three primary reasons. Uh, First is resources. Uh, He had gathered an offering for the famine-stricken believers in Jerusalem. A severe drought had caused them uh, to be in in just uh, horrible conditions. And so he had gathered money from other churches in Asia Minor in order to deliver to the church there in Jerusalem to help the suffering believers there. Uh, So resources and also a report. Uh, As he did after his first and second missionary journey, he made a circuit, came back to the church, at Jerusalem and gave a report. And so he's certainly going to be doing that. And then he's also preparing to go to Rome. And Romans chapter 15, he told them that he hoped to come to them soon. And you know what? He would, although not under the circumstances that maybe he had hoped originally. Uh, he was not going to go just as a missionary. He was going to go as a prisoner. Uh, but regardless, he was going to share the gospel because that's just what Paul was all about, about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here we're going to read that he's going to enter some very, very dark days. Very, very dark days. And uh, I think what we see here um, in these dark days is that uh, there's an example for us on how we can witness well in very dark days. And that's what we see here in this passage. And so 
What we want to learn this morning is Christ gives us five essential elements to witness well in dark days. And I'm not sure if you're in the midst of dark days, uh, maybe on a personal level. Uh, maybe there's some things going on in your life that just, it seems like there's no light at the end of the tunnel. If so, then God has a word for you this morning. But I think in a larger context, we see um, as Christianity began to spread, it had encountered a great deal of resistance and attack from Satan, and, and Satan using people in order to attack Paul and the gospel. And I think this also, this passage will prepare us for what I think probably will be darker days ahead for us as Christians. Um, I don't want to be doom and gloom. <laughs> Uh, that's not my personality. Um, but I think it would be hard for us uh, to ignore the fact that there's been an in increasing hostility toward biblical Christianity. Uh, and I'm talking about a kind of Christianity that uh, takes the Bible seriously and wants to live obediently. Can I say it this way, where the Bible speaks plainly, where God speaks plainly, we speak plainly. Um, where we're unwilling to compromise biblical truth because it is not our truth to mess with. It is God's truth. We're just proclaimers. Uh, I think for people who take the Bible seriously, there are probably darker days ahead, uh, increasing hostility. And we need to know how to uh, deal with that biblically. Uh, listen, it's not just important that we say the things that God says from His Word. But I think it's also important that how we say it must also be governed by Scripture. Uh, what we say is governed by Scripture, and how we say it also ought to be governed by Scripture. So we get into this passage, and we realize that Paul is beginning this, five, this journey, which is going to lead to a, lead to a five-year prison sentence, um, not for crimes that he committed, but simply for loving Christ and loving others and proving that love by sharing the gospel. You know, whenever we hear about someone wrongly convicted of a crime, our hearts break. I, I hear these stories of people that were in prison for crimes they didn't commit, spending sometimes decades in prison. And then they find the evidence that exonerates them, and they're released. And I think about all the time that was lost and how heavy that was. As much as your heart breaks for something like that, and it should... Think about the Apostle Paul spending five years in prison, not for doing the wrong thing, but for doing the right thing, <laughs> and doing so for the right reasons. And so we see him uh, in verses 1 through 25, uh, he is pressing on to Jerusalem, even though we know that God had revealed to him personally that he was going to suffer hardship. He says in chapter 20, these things don't move me. <laughs> He says, I don't count my life dear to myself. The only thing I want to do is to fulfill the ministry that God has given me and to do so with great joy. Joy? Really? We're talking about prison, and he knew it. But just in case, there were two prophets that came to him along the way, which we read about, that came and said, hey, Paul, God has revealed that you are going to go into, as you go to Jerusalem, you're going into the fire, <laughs> You're going into, into persecution, and 
you're going into hostility. You're going into pain and suffering. And yet Paul presses on. Why? Because he's just a stubborn person? No. It's because he knew he had been called by God to that very thing. And more than that, he saw that God's people were so important, the gospel so important, that any amount of suffering and any cost, any sacrifice was worth it. And folks, that is true for us today. God's people are so valuable, we should be willing to pay any cost, no matter how high the price, for their good. And he did. In verses 1 through 25, we focused more on his attitude and sacrificing and suffering for the church. Now we're going to see that same heart being displayed as he takes the gospel to the lost, to those who don't know God. Uh, Paul was going to go to the temple, and he was going to do so in an act of love for his spiritual family, the church. And he was encouraging unity and solidarity. Again, he believed that because Christ gave his life for the good of the church, so we should do the same. But we also see here an act of love for what we call future family, people who don't yet know Jesus Christ, but through the preaching of the gospel will come into his spiritual family. He wanted to go to Rome because he wanted to share Jesus Christ and was willing to do so even if it meant in chains. But then we see something else happen here as we will read this passage in just a moment. We see Paul almost being beaten to death. And as he was being rescued by the Roman soldiers, he tells them, stop. I need to talk to the people in order to get a chance to preach the gospel again. Uh, we see his willingness to even risk his life to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, he arrives in Jerusalem and uh, talks to James and the elders of the church, and they tell him about some people who are falsely accusing him of speaking against the law and Jewish customs. Uh, they were essentially telling Paul, you know, you're super anti-Semitic. <laughs> he was a Jew. <laughs> uh, you hate the law. <laughs> you're telling people not to circumcise their children. You're telling them to, to ignore Moses. You don't care about it. And he's like, no, I care more than you can ever imagine. Matter of fact, remember what he said? If it were possible for me to become accursed from Christ, to be forever separated from Christ, I would do so if it meant my people could come to know him. And so they had spoken falsely against him. And so the apostles, James and the, or James and the elders of the church, said, hey, you know what you should do is uh, you should take a Nazarite vow along with four other men, and you should pay all their expenses. And by doing that, then everyone would know that you're not against the law in Moses. I mean, Nazarite vow, that goes back to Numbers chapter 6, back to the law. They would see that you honor the law. And by paying for their expenses, again, great personal cost, people would know that you're not against ethnic Jews. You're not against the law. It's just that you know that the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, so you preach Jesus, the only real hope. And so he does. And that's where we find him in verse 26. So let me read this, and it's a lengthy passage, so I'm going to allow you to remain seated. It says, then Paul took 
the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification. It would be a seven-day period at the end of the Nazarite vow, which could last 30 days or more, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. So, I'll talk about what those sacrifices were that required. It was very expensive. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and against this place. And furthermore, he has brought Greeks, essentially Gentiles, into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city of whom they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. Now, as they were still seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison, who we find out later is named Claudius Lysias, a little bit later in uh, Acts, uh, that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. There was a riot going on. Now, this is pretty scary stuff because... Uh, uh, during the feast days, Passover would have been right now, uh, the city of Jerusalem could swell, some estimate, up to 2 million people, very zealous for the law. So this, this was a powder keg waiting to explode. So it says, uh, Jerusalem was in an uproar, so immediately he took soldiers and centurions, and he ran down to them. And when they saw the commander of the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near, took him, and commanded him to be bound in two chains, and he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing, and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. And when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after him, crying, away with him. Okay, uh, let me break that down. It means kill him. Put him to death right now. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? And he replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no small city. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language saying, and we're actually going to stop there. They can tell us what he said. Well, you can read it for yourself this afternoon. But I want to just focus in on the events leading up to this wonderful speech that he gives, where he details the work of Christ in his life. And what I want to bring out is these five essentials that Christ gives us when we enter into these dark days, when, when we have to bear witness to the gospel when it's not received well. And again, I think it's important for us today because I think there has been a noticeable shift against Bible-believing Christians in our own country. Now, as I go through these, I want to say something. 
Uh, the final point of these five is really the secret sauce, <laughs> which makes ties all of the others together. But I'm not going to get to all five today, so I'm going to have to give you a preview of the secret sauce. I'm not going to explain all of it because I really want to wait and give it justice next week. But the question is, is how was it that Paul responded so well in this terrifying episode? What, what I want to be sure that you don't walk away saying is this, hey, if you're awesome, if you're an awesome Christian, you'll do awesome stuff like Paul. <laughs> That's not what I'm trying to share with you this morning. What I am trying to share with you is this, is that you and I serve the same awesome Lord as Paul did. <laughs> and Paul, just as God worked in Paul, a simple man's life, God also works in your life to witness well in dark days. If you're like, I could never do this, I'm looking at how he responds to this, this mob, and I could never have been so calm, so courageous. Let me assure you that the same Lord who walked with Paul walks with you. And the secret sauce is not that you have to be awesome, but that you have to trust in an awesome Savior who will walk with you just as he walked with Paul. And so we see in this passage, he walks into this temp, the temple compound. And it's a, they actually, in the temple compound, if you were to look at a diagram, they have a section of it that's actually dedicated for people who have taken Nazarite vows. And there they would go to end their vow. And uh, if you want to read all about the Nazarite vow, I won't go into it very deeply uh, this morning, but just know that it's essentially a special time of dedication to the Lord. There were special rules you would follow during that dedication, one of which was not to cut your hair. Then at the end of that, you would actually shave your head, take the hair and burn it there at the temple. And that would be sort of the, the sacrifice of this time is being offered here, uh, along with a number of other sacrifices that were part of it. And what we see here is that there were some Jews from Ephesus who used it as an opportunity to stir up the crowd to attack Paul. Now, uh, notice that they said they recognized Trophimus from Ephesus. Now, if you'll, uh, in your mind, sort of rewind back to Acts chapter 19 and remember that there was a riot in Ephesus as well, Paul just seems to just stir up a lot of anger in people who don't like the gospel, probably because he was just faithful in sharing it. Uh, people who aren't willing to stand for the truth usually don't have people who don't like them standing for the truth because they don't stand for it. But he did, not in a mean and cruel way, which we'll see, but rather just in complete consecration to his Savior. And so uh, they had certainly... Uh, as Jews from all over the area would have come in for the Feast of the Passover, Paul has spent three years in Ephesus. And Trophimus uh, is not only traveling with him now, but we see him even up to 10 years later still traveling with Paul. So he probably would have been right there in Paul's ministry in Ephesus. So the Jews that hated Paul would have seen Trophimus right there helping him. They see Trophimus, who is not ethnic Jewish, 
uh, but is Gentile, they see him and they sort of rub their hands together and say, hey, listen, I see an opportunity for us to take out Paul once and for all. Now, if you go back to Acts chapter 19, what you would see is this. It seems as though the Jews wanted to kill Paul, but they missed their opportunity because a bunch of Gentiles got angry with Paul and dragged him off before they got a chance. Uh, you remember what happened? Remember Demetrius the silversmith? Uh, he was up in arms because as Paul preached, people turned away from worshiping idols to turning to worshiping Christ. The problem is that Demetrius sold little idols, <laughs> uh, little bobbleheads. I, they weren't bobbleheads, but you know what I'm saying. Little bobbleheads of, of, of their, the goddess, Diana, and uh, because so many people were turning away from idol worship, it was cutting into his business. So he says, I got to get rid of this dude. This guy is costing me money. So, of course, a riot was started, and they dragged him off, but it seemed as though it says they took Alexander, uh, who was a Jew, and he, they put him forward in order to speak to the crowd, and it says once they found out he was Jewish, they shouted him down, greatest Diana of the Ephesians, greatest Diana of the Ephesians. Uh, don't you love that about mobs? They don't want to hear anything. They just keep on chanting the same things over and over, uh, lest you take some truth and actually challenge their thinking. <laughs> and so, uh, it seems as though the Jews were kind of already after three years of ministry and seeing Jews converted from Judaism to Christianity, they were already pretty upset. They had their own thing in the works to take out Paul, and then Demetrius beat him to it. Only Demetrius didn't get to put him to death. Instead, he got in prison, but then released. And so now they're, they're smarting from that. They, they're upset about it. Then all of a sudden, sometime later, they see Paul in the temple and they're thinking, how is it, listen, back in Ephesus, there were more of the Gentiles than there were of us. But in Jerusalem during the feast days, oh, we way outnumber them. So this is our chance. And then also they said, wait a minute, Trophimus is a Gentile. If Paul brought Trophimus into the inner courtyard it means that we're allowed to put him to death. And I'll explain why in just a minute. And they realized their plan came together right at that moment. They realized all we have to do is accuse Paul of bringing a Greek into the area and we can put him to death. And that's exactly what they did. So they rush in, they grab him, they start beating him. Now, uh, there in the temple courtyard on, on the, one of the walls was the fortress of Antonio, uh, named after Mark Antony by Herod the Great. And it was interesting because uh, the fortress uh, of Antonio, um, Antonia shared a wall with the temple compound. And so it had this garrison housed a thousand Roman soldiers who had been trained as basically riot police. They're specially trained soldiers to disperse any mobs or anything that looked like. And this is pretty serious because Claudius Lysias... Uh, if things got out of hand, it would be his head. So as soon as it says he hears it came into his ears that there was a, a, a riot, he immediately rushed in soldiers to disperse the crowd. Now, because this, this fortress shared a wall, there's actually a set of stairs, two flights of stairs that led down into the courtyard of the Gentiles. They were so worried about it, they said, we're going to put a special entrance for the garrison right into the temple courtyard. Because if anything happens, we have to be there right now to disperse it. So as soon as they heard it, he brings in a bunch of Roman, highly trained Roman soldiers to kind of disperse the crowd. Now, they shut the doors of the temple immediately. 
because they're like, hey, we don't want to fight all the temple. If there's Gentiles milling around, we're going to go ahead and make sure there's none of them in here. We're going to shut the doors. And if they're going to fight it out, they're going to fight it out in the courtyard of the Gentiles. Now, keep in mind that the, the temple courtyard would have had several areas. One was the, the outermost uh, area was the courtyard of the Gentiles. Anyone who wanted to go in there can mill around in that area. Then there was a, another inner courtyard, which is the courtyard of women. Okay, And then an inner courtyard from there, that was the courtyard of men. Yes, I'm not saying that they had the right idea about this at all. Okay, This was a, seriously a problem. And so uh, then from there then would be the actual temple in which only the priest would go in. And then inside that was the holy of holies where only the high priest could go once a year. So there's all these areas that were controlled. And here's something amazing. In the courtyard of the Gentiles, there was a fence and uh, sort of uh, balustrades. Bal- I don't know if I'm saying that correct, but basically there's fence posts, <laughs> big ones. And on there, they would inset these um, placards that said this. And I want to get it right because it's very, very interesting. It said, no man of any alien race is to, and by the way, alien means someone of a foreign race, uh, not actual aliens. Okay. And so uh, they can't enter within the barricades that go around this temple. And if anyone is taken in the act or caught in the act of crossing through those, let him know that he has himself to blame for the penalty of death that follows. Every Jew knew that. It was, it was, it was clearly marked all along the outside. So all they said is, like, it says death. And by the way, even the Romans allowed the Jews to put people to death that violated this. As a matter of fact, later on, Emperor Titus um, said the same. He said, uh, when he was reasoning with the Jews, he said, didn't we let you kill people who entered the courtyard? We gave you freedom. <laughs> and so they knew that this would be an accusation that would give them a pretext for murdering Paul. And so that's exactly what they tried to do. Now, let's kind of bring this into some principles that will help us this morning. We're just going to talk about the very first principle. These are the things that we see in Paul's life empowered by the Lord Jesus Christ, what Christ will do in our life. And it's, first of all, that he gives us compassion. Compassion. Notice the the stark difference between the attitudes and action of Paul and the mob. Uh, Paul is speaking calmly. He's saying, hey, can I talk to the people? Give Give me an opportunity to share the truth. Whereas they had no interest in truth but to just commit violence. They dragged him out. They start beating him. Uh, No proof. No trial. Just unfettered anger. Unconstrained violence. But not Paul. How is it that Paul had this calmness? Uh, How is it that Paul had this desire? Listen, let's just be clear here. Uh, Put yourself in Paul's place. These people are beating you. And you're thinking, this could be it. And then all of a sudden, Roman soldiers walk, run in. They disperse the crowd away from you. They pick you up. And it says that they had to carry him because of the violence. Basically, put him up on their shoulders and carry him and they would start making their way up the stairs that led to the garrison to be 
to be away from the crowds. And he says while they were on the stairs, Paul stopped them and started talking to Claudius Lysias. And he says, here, can I talk to the people? That, me, that was me? Uh, no. Bloodthirsty crowd. Safety. <laughs> I'm going to choose safety. I wouldn't say, hey, guys, I thought I would take this bloodthirsty mob and just try to reason with them for a little bit. No. I would, it would be like, get me up out of here as fast as you can. Get me up in that garrison. There's a thousand soldiers there. Hopefully you guys can keep me from being beaten or killed. But not Paul. Paul says, stop. Now listen here. Understand this. He's been told that he's going to suffer persecution. And, and, and he's been told, hey, you need to go to the temple and offer this sacrifice of the Nazarites and, and pay their way because it would be an act of, of gracious unity and solidarity with the people who are accusing you of being anti-Semitic. He could have said, yeah, you know, I've been told that uh, when I get there, people aren't going to like me very much. How about I kind of avoid the millions of people gathered in this kind of zealous fervor who don't like me? That just seems like a recipe for disaster. Instead, because he loved the church and because he wanted to see the church healthy and unified, he says, yeah, I'll do it. That kind of just blows me away. And then, he, again, he gets to the, to the top of the stairs there, and, and he's like, hey, I need, I need to, or uh, up the stairs, and says, hey, I want to talk to the people. And what we see is Christ gives us the right heart, which produces the right actions. You know, our actions do reveal our hearts. Our real motives are revealed in our actions. Uh, when you look at the bloodthirsty crowd, does it seem like they're really interested in just defending the glory of God? But why does Paul do what he does? The question is, is why do we do what we do? You know, our motives as Christians can be seen in our response to our critics. Paul responded in a gracious and compassionate way. You see, because the right cause deserves the right motives, and the right motives will produce the right actions. Christ had given him a heart to love God and love others. That was seen by his gracious reaction to a bloodthirsty crowd. The right heart produces the right motives, produces the right actions. But wrong motives and wrong actions really undermine the right causes. You know, as Christians, we can undermine the truth that we love so much by how we respond to hostility. We have to be careful not to allow righteous anger to become sinful anger. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26 and 27 say, be angry and do not sin. Do not the, let the sun go down upon your wrath. Don't give place to the devil. The idea here is, hey, when you're angry about something good, don't let it get twisted into unholy, unrighteous anger. You say, no, all anger is bad. No, that's not true. You look in the Bible, and I, I'm not going to go on to study it, but you look in the Bible, there is righteous anger. You know, it's right that we get angry at injustice. It's right that we get angry at 
things that are evil and harm people. We should get angry about it. But what can happen is, is we can begin to turn that anger into something about us instead of something about God. And start becoming people that are rude and obnoxious. We make the anger about us instead of keeping it where it should be focused, like Paul, which is on the glory of God. How do we see that? Because he kept his focus like a laser on the glory of Jesus Christ. I must share Jesus Christ. So don't mistake brashness for bravery, crassness for courage, rudeness for righteousness. You know, I, I think sometimes this is a fault in, in younger people, and I'm not trying to throw them under the bus because I've seen it in a lot of older people too. They mistake bravado for strength. They think by, by being snarky and rude that they're uh, just standing for the truth. And I call this the Rehoboam effect. <laughs> we see that in 1 Kings chapter 12. You know, Rehoboam becomes a king after Solomon, and he decides to give some advice, uh, uh, to seek advice about how to become a good king. And so he goes to the older men, and he says, hey, guys, uh, how can I become a beloved king like Solomon? And they say, hey, listen, your, your dad put very heavy taxes on us. It, it's crushing the people. If you reduce the taxes out of love and care for the people, they'll love you, and they'll, they'll follow you. He goes, okay, noted. He goes to the younger men, the one that said he grew up with, and he asked them the same question. Hey, what, what kind of king should I be? And they said, you need to tell the people that compared to you, your dad was a wimp. That they thought he was tough as nails, you're going to be tougher. <laughs> In other words, show them strength by crushing those around you. But the older men knew that, no, you, you solidify your strength by caring for people, not by crushing them. And sometimes what I see online and, and reactions by people is they think by being rude and, and uh, distasteful to their enemies that they're going to somehow show how strong they are. You know, when I was in, uh, did martial arts, I was not scared of the guy who was always mouthing off. I was scared of the guy who didn't. But when he stood up, you knew you were in trouble when, when you are going to have to spar. You see, he didn't have to go on blustering about how strong he was. He just did the right thing. He just fought well. And that's what I'm afraid of is, as Christians, sometimes we think that strength is seen by how we can crush those around us. But that wasn't Paul's. You know, Paul's heart was filled with love for God and others, even though they were rejecting him. You know, something interesting here is Paul may have already been walking in with a pretty wounded heart. You know, we've heard things like, hurt people hurt people. And I think that is true sometimes. Sometimes people are wounded, don't process pain well, sometimes hurt other people. And that's very unfortunate. But I think we see Paul walking in wounded, and yet he finds a strength in Christ where he doesn't have to crush his enemies. He simply preaches truth with a gentle, compassionate heart, and he sees much more accomplished that way. 
Um, you know, Paul, as he walked in there, and maybe, I'm, it's, maybe it's a bit of speculation, but Paul, when he, went to the, when he went to the church of Jerusalem, met with James and the elders. They said, Paul, you know, there are people who are speaking against your ministry. You know, why don't you prove to them that you uh, have the right heart and are following Christ? Why don't you prove that by taking these men to do the Nazarite vow? I sort of wonder if there was a little part of Paul's heart that said, guys, why didn't you just stand up and defend me? The fact is, is you've seen my heart. You know my heart. You know my actions are right. You know I'm following Christ. Why not just stand up and tell those those people, hey, we know Paul, we know Paul's heart. He's demonstrated it consistently that he's doing the right thing. Why do I have to prove it? Now, let me just say this about Paul. Paul was loving enough that he did. And there were people that said it was, uh, some commentator said, it was the very fact that he was willing to go into the temple, into the Nazarite area, and taking this vow was probably the most likely reason he was arrested, discovered and arrested at that moment. Now, we know the sovereignty of God. His plan is much bigger than that, right? This is all part of what God had planned for Paul because he already told him that, right? And yet I wonder if there's a little part of Paul that kind of ached in his soul because James says, hey, you have to prove yourself, Paul. And he's like, hasn't two missionary journeys, beatings, shipwrecks, pain and suffering, hasn't all that already proved where my heart's at? The fact is, James and them, they never questioned it because they knew it. They were saying, you just got to prove it to others. I sort of wonder if maybe he didn't walk into the situation, perhaps even just a little bit wounded, that he had to do it. But the awesome thing was that he was willing to do it. So we have to trust Christ to give us the right heart, which will produce the right actions. But secondly, we see where Christ will help us focus on life-giving truth, even if they speak death. Uh, look what's going on here. They're shouting, kill him. Away with him means kill him. Drag him out and kill him. Kill him. Kill him. Kill him. And in the midst of this, he says, stop. They're calling for my death. But I have a message of life I would like to give them. You know how we, how we overcome the violence and the hostility? I just keep on speaking life when they speak death. He just focused on life. He focused on that which would impart life through Christ Jesus. As a matter of fact, it's interesting how he said in chapter 22, verse 1, he starts off with, here is my defense. And he starts... Uh, he is defending himself, but what's interesting about the word defense, apologia, it has this sense of just giving truth with a, with a strong flavor of mercy and grace. He didn't shout back at them. Instead, he just stuck to the truth in a gracious way. The only way people can fight, the only way we can fight against lies is with truth. But the only way others can fight against truth 
according to this, as with lies and violence. We don't fight the same way. (laughs) We don't have to use straw men. He said, I'm going to give you a reasoned defense. We don't have to use intimidation. Paul was no rebel rouser or mindless zealot. And interestingly enough, he was asked by Claudius, hey, can you even speak Greek? He's trying to say, are you one of those country bumpkins that only speak Aramaic? He's like, obviously, you're not smart enough. And he's like, no, actually, uh, I'm from Tarsus. And he asked him if he was an assassin, which we'll kind of deal with uh, next week. So they thought he was just a mindless zealot, a country bumpkin, but instead he delivers a well-rounded defense of the faith. And he spoke because he wasn't concerned about his own safety. He was concerned about the souls of others. He couldn't focus on his own temporal life when the eternal destinies of so many was on the line. Well, let me just give you a passage as we close. Turn over, if you would, to 1 Peter in chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 and 23, we see where... Uh, Peter, in much the same way as Paul, is giving us the right response to hostility. In chapter 2 and and verse 19, he says, For this is commendable, if because of the conscience conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you're beaten for your fault you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer and you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us with this example, so that we might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When they got nasty with him, he didn't get nasty back. When he suffered, he did not threaten them, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. You see, he wouldn't allow himself to get drugged down to the, the, the base tactics of his enemies. He took the higher ground. He said they lied, but he wouldn't. They were rude, but he wouldn't. They threatened, but he wouldn't. Instead, he just committed himself to God. You know, as we go through this, this is what we're basically seeing Paul do. Paul is just simply saying, God, I'm going to stay focused on the things that really matter. I'm not going to get drugged down to their, I'm not going to let them drag me down in the mud and get this into a, 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 a fight in the mud. Instead, I'm going to be like Jesus Christ, and with the power of Christ, I want to show compassion even when they're nasty, rude, and they attack So let me just leave you with that. If we're going to witness well in darkening days, it has to start with a commitment that like Christ, in the power of Christ, we're going to show compassion even if they don't. If they don't, if they don't ever show the slightest bit of compassion to us, we're going to be compassionate to them because there's something greater at stake. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Uh, Thank you for this passage, and again, we cast our whole heart and mind, God, God, our lives 
solely on Jesus Christ. God, we know right now uh, we don't have the power to respond well. God, we will run in fear. Uh, God, we will get angry and respond the wrong way. But Lord, we believe that in the power of Christ, like Paul, we can respond well and we can love our enemies to really love those who spitefully use and abuse us. Because we see something much greater at stake. Eternal souls. And as royal ambassadors of the gospel, called to speak for King Jesus the, the truth that there is life in him alone. We cannot undermine our message through the wrong response. God, we admit right now, it's not within us to do it. We need Jesus. Would you help us? We pray in his name. Amen. Well, we do have communion, and we do have a dinner afterwards. We encourage you to, to stay and, and be a part of it. If you can't participate in communion, we invite you to, you can certainly make your way into the fellowship hall and wait there. Uh, and of course, uh, there's no pressure to participate. We